case, number 21-1542, SAS Institute, Incorporated against World Programming Limited. Mr. Sindali. Your Honors, and may it please the Court, my name is Dale Sindali, and I represent Appellant SAS Institute. In this case, it's undisputed that Appellee WPL meticulously... This is Judge Wallach. I have a number of questions for you. I'd like to get right to them, okay? On page 11 of the red brief, WPL contends, quote, it is undisputed that WPL never copied any text of SAS's source code or any of its structural design. Is that undisputed? That is undisputed because this is a case of non-literal copying, which... Listen to me. I have a lot of questions for you. A simple yes or no is fine, okay? On page 1314 of the red brief, WPL contends, although you allege holding over 100 copyrightable registrations, your complaint fails to identify which registrations were asserted. Would you please identify which of those regulations you assert in the present case? We identified seven registrations in our case and in our opening brief. Just give me the brief site. It is on page 21 of our brief. It says the SAS system is covered by seven copyright registrations, citing appendix 345 to 371. On page 17 of the red brief, WPL... I'm sorry, Your Honor, I can't hear you. Okay. On page 17 of the red brief, WPL contends that Dr. Storer admitted that he never reviewed the code constituting SAS's asserted computer programs, the actual copyrighted work, or compared that code to WPL's. That's true, isn't it? Correct. Okay. On page 20 to 21 of the red brief, WPL contends that Dr. Storer admitted that an exhibit purporting to analyze WPL's code was not prepared at his request, contradicting an SAS affidavit averring it was prepared at his behest. Do you agree with that statement? No, Your Honor, it was prepared at his request. What in the record shows that? Because when I read his testimony, it sure didn't look like that. In his deposition testimony, he said that he had asked Mr. Leeds to prepare material for him in which he relied, which is very common for experts to do. And who was that? That's an attorney, is it not? No. He's another computer expert, and it's very common for testifying experts to rely on such things. In fact, Appendix 13483 
uh, lines 21 to 22, Stora said that he directed the substance of his report, and every word in it was his report. Okay. On page 57 of the red brief, WPL contends that Dr. Stora never identified any code modules or data structures that might relate to the generation of such output design. Do you disagree with that statement? No. Uh, on, page 20, on page 25 of the gray brief, you contend that the district court's order never objected to Dr. Stoner's inferences or methodology. Uh, do you believe district courts have to object to witness statements? And, and in any case, how is it true when the district court said, I'm quoting, in light of the particularly meager AFC analysis performed by Dr. Storer, which can at best be described as scant, it finds that his analysis and methodology are unreliable, which is reinforced and supported by the egregious conduct of Dr. Storer as documented in WPL's corrected motion to exclude. Wouldn't you agree the court clearly found the testimony objectionable? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the last statement Your Honor made. Wouldn't you agree the court? Clearly yeah. found the, the testimony yeah. objectionable. You said the court must object to witness statements. But it seems to me the court clearly found it objectionable. It, the, the, the court excluded Dr. Storer, that is true, but based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what his burden was, and that was in a misunderstanding played up by, invited the court uh, by WPL in the Jones Report, as Appendix 1988 shows the Jones Report, rather than doing what it should have done and meticulously go through everything that uh, WPL admittedly copied and explain why they were un it was unprotectable. Instead, repeatedly criticized Storer for not uh, using his burden, uh, for not going through everything and explaining why things were un not unprotectable. That wasn't his burden, as our brief showed. In fact, Dr. Storer did do a filtration analysis and concluded that the main purpose of the program should be excluded and included that uh, things with regard to the interface mechanisms were not protectable. But then he went on to say, and this is a core mistake. Counsel, you ignore the court at your peril. I, I, I apologize, Your Honor. I did not hear that you were, in, you were trying to speak. I apologize. All right. On page 25 of the gray brief, I, I'm trying to keep you from wasting your time. On page 25 of the gray brief, you contend that the district expert for not performing the filtration analysis that it wanted. Court rejected Dr. Storer's test. I see. Judge Wallach, your, your voice cuts out from time to time. So if counsel asks for it to be repeated, I think we all share that view. Okay, um, let me take me off, take it off speaker and I'll try this. Oh, Is oh. this better? It, it could be better. Much better. Okay, I apologize. Uh, thank you, Judge Newman. Uh, on on um, page 28 of the red brief, uh, 
WPL contends that you pre- re- reproduce lines of the free-to-use SAS language from non-asserted manuals, uh, and SAS shows uh, images generated by user-written programs. Are these illustrations from non-asserted manuals? No, Your Honor. The manuals are are part of what is used to show and is commonly done what the expression looks like. Okay, I'm going to defer defer to my brethren. I've taken a lot of time, and I have a lot more questions. Um, Counselor, this is Judge Arena. I I have a question that I think it addresses what I see to be an unresolved uh, legal issue, and that's concerning the posture the procedural posture of the of the decision of the district court. Um, I guess my first question to you is: um, the district court decided copyrightability as a matter of law, and it did that after holding a hearing, an evidentiary hearing on copyrightability. My, my question is: what do you see as being the correct standard of review? If you disagree with with that. And um, did the district court actually resolve any factual issues as a result of the evidentiary hearing? Thank you, Your Honor. The, the copyrightability hearing is it was improper procedurally. Uh, the way, first off, copyrightability is a mixed question of law and fact. Engineering dynamics in the Fifth Circuit adopted Gates rubber. In addition. In Aspen Technology, the Fifth Circuit explicitly noted that the jury, as the ultimate fact finder, was entitled to determine whether the copied aspects of the program were entitled to protection. Here, the district court said it did not want to address the issues on summary judgment and ferret out what was a disputed issue of material fact or not, and had this this copyrightability hearing that, as far as we know, in either neither side has cited any other court has ever done. And he said in his opinion that it it was part of it was legal. Well, the problem in a mixed question of law and fact, the other part is factual. And that was taken away from the jury improperly. And that did the district, did the district court decide any factual issues? It's, it's, the standard of review here is, is, is de novo. The district court did not it, – it, it's very much, frankly, very confusing what the district court was trying to do. The district court said that some aspect of the SAS uh, copyrighted work was in the public domain, but it never identified which portions, if any, actually were. It did say that. Other than that, all the district court said was that WPL had presented evidence on various topics. It never grappled with that evidence and said, because of this reason, this portion of the copied work is unprotectable, which is what a court is supposed to do. It totally didn't do that. And, and, and therefore, it's very difficult for this court in reviewing it because this wasn't a Rule 52 bench trial. There's no findings and conclusions um, all right. Let me have a follow-up question here. And uh, um, now, if, if your expert witness had not been excluded, would any of his testimony or the report um, have been been used at the evidentiary hearing? Uh, 
yes, absolutely. He kept trying to an answer because the court misunderstood the burdens and kept trying to ask Dr. Storer to prove the negative. He was trying to do that and explain in his comparison, his copyrightability, his section of his report where he did all the uh, comparisons of all the side-by-side copies, et cetera, to explain the protectable expression. And the court wouldn't let him even refer to other parts of his own report. Okay. Here's another question, and then I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll fade back for a little bit. But um, one of your one of the elements of proof here is ownership of a copyright, and it seems to me that your position is that if once you have a registered copyright, that the entire the entire uh, the entire matter is subject to protection, um, meaning all elements within that particular matter are protected by the registration. Am I correct in, 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 in that assessment? Yes, absolutely, Your Honor. The Copyright Act says it's extremely fascist. Please continue the thought. That it's, it, that it's premium fascist evidence of validity, and as we cite in our brief, the House report says that the plaintiff should not ordinarily be forced in the first instance to prove all the multitude of facts that underlie the validity of the copyright. But that's the validity of the copyright, correct? I mean, it seems to me that in your first step of showing ownership, one of the elements included in there is uh, whether the copyright was duly issued, and where they was issued pursuant to all statutory requirements and things of that nature. But as to actual protection, I have a difficult time um, accepting that once you have registration, that you have complete protection of all elements within, within, that, within that, and that you don't have to argue later on that what's protected and what's not just by taking the position that you have a duly registered uh, copyright. And, and I think that that, that kind of runs afoul of the same notion here in other legal disciplines, like even in tort. You have to show a particular injury and relate that injury to, to the defendant. In patent law, you can have a valid patent that's issued by the PTO, and yet some claims, but not all claims, some claims, may be found to be invalid and therefore uh, there's no infringement with respect to those those uh, invalid claims. Uh, um, you seem to take the position that you don't have to designate or identify which elements within the, the matter are, are protected by cop- copyright. And I, I, can you address that, please? Yes, Your Honor. The the presumption is for the whole work, and the Boysen case, for example, in the Second Circuit, says that includes the constituent elements of the work. But what what happens is that you identify as the plaintiff what within the overall work, which is usually larger, the defendant copied, which we did here, the input formats and the output designs. Um, and then the the burden, because of the presumption, is on the other side to explain why what it copied was not protectable. I think that's familiar. I defer to this court on patent issues, but that's familiar, similar, similar 
to invalidity, where it's the defendant that comes forward and tries to argue issues with regard to invalidity. It's the same true with regard to obviousness, which is very factual. It's the, 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 the defendant comes forward with trying to explain that. And that makes sense, as CompuLife says. So, so you would agree that, that SAS would bear the responsibility at some point within this process of coming forth and identifying which elements of its copyrighted matter is subject to protection? Uh, no, I'm not saying the first step, or I'm saying at some point, SAS has to do that, right? Yes. SAS had to and did identify that among my copyrightable protected works were these input formats and output designs, and you copied that subset of my program. Then they had to say why it wasn't protected, and then it was our job did, to respond. Was there any additional information other than using the statements, input, and output designs? Uh, was there any, any evidence as to what those are and where, they, where they're located, where they're identified? Yes, Your Honor. For example, in the appendix at 13881, SAS provided a list of approximately 12,700 uh, keywords that were copied. And similarly, appendix 1373 to 1428, using one of WPL's own documents, the Quick Reference Guide, 50 pages long, it showed on an input format by input format level what was copied. And then on page 865 of the appendix, SAS provided roughly 400 default outputs, in other words, side-by-sides showing what outputs designs had been li literally copied by, by, by SAS. So okay. SAS? Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm aware that I'm past my time. So well, well no, we'll save your rebuttal time. Are there any more questions at the moment for Ms. Sindali? This is Judge Wallach. No, thank you. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll hear from Mr. Lampkin. Thank you. Good morning, and may it please the Court. Um, I would like to start with a clarification, and that was that Dr. Storer's testimony was not excluded from the copyright hearing. He testified from pages 3385 to 3485 for 100 pages. His testimony was excluded from trial because the judge found it would not, was not reliable and would not be helpful to the jury. Backing up, before turning to the, who has the burden of proof on protected elements or Dr. Storer's exclusion or the failure to um, identify where the non-literal elements appear in the protected asserted code, I wanted to emphasize that judgment here was proper regardless of who bears the burden, as we set forth on pages 42 to 44 of our brief. Everyone agrees that to find copyright infringement, juries must make a side-by-side -side comparison of two things, the protected elements of the copyrighted work against the accused work. Courts have to identify those protected elements that the jury can use for that comparison. And the district court here directed SAS to provide specifics as to the protected elements that could be presented to the jury. Just identify them. And SAS refused four times over. At the hearing, WPL presented overwhelming evidence from SAS's own witness. What, what do you say, Counselor, to your, uh, to your opponent who just cited out of the, out of the record um, different places where they did specify the elements that are subject to protection? Yeah, so all of those 
are things that are in WPL's accused work. They're not pointing to SAS's um, underlying mm-hmm. code. They're not pointing to SAS's work. And they're not doing anything to identify what in any of the putative screens or anything is actually protected elements. So when WPL did, went did to they identify site, in, Did SAS identify anything that they, they believe is subject to protection? Well, SAS's position throughout was that everything is protected. If you look at page 9 of the appendix in the district court's decision, um, their position was that all of the screen outputs, everything that SAS's software will generate in response to users' programming, every one of those screens, potentially infinite, is protected. Every element of those screens. But that's, um, that's standard, straightforward copyright law as far as literary works are concerned. The work is protected. You don't look through and say, well, you use the word the or the word little or this or that, which is in the dictionary, and therefore it's not protected. What they were reciting is, as I understand, the copyright law, the difference between patents and copyright, is that the work as a whole is protected from copying. And if pieces of it are plucked out, you look and see if that's fair use rather than unprotected substance. And so there, the insistence, I mean, the, the problem, of course, is that we're dealing with software and need to be very much aware of the possibility as to if there are differences in terms of the the writings that constitute the software and the writings that constitute uh, works of art, of works of literature. So let's let's focus on that and on where the burden shifts in terms of copying. Your position, I gather, was never that this was fair use. Is that right? But rather that these aspects. Uh, that were copied are unprotected. Uh, so we, then we never got to fair use because, as you point out, when you're dealing with software, you have to do what's called a filtration analysis to separate the I'm elements. I'm not so sure. You, you certainly don't get that from the way the Supreme Court has been looking at copyright recently. From your view, must we affirmatively endorse the concept of filtration uh, I think it's interesting that we've been uh, that patent experts have been reviewing these issues because it brings us really head to head with the differences between copyright and patents. So there's two things. First, because we're governed by Fifth Circuit precedent, and the Fifth Circuit has adopted the AFC, the Abstraction Filtration Analysis, this court is bound by it. The Eleventh Circuit precedent, which um, SAS invokes says that you do the abstraction filtration. And even Feist says, look, the entire work may be deemed protected if you have a copyright registration, but when non-literal elements are being asserted, something that's an extrapolation from that under, what's underneath, you're going to have to determine what the protected elements are. And that even, has to be Even though it's copied? Even though it's copied verbatim? Yeah, even if things, um, outputs look the same, you have to determine, it's important for software like software like this, you have to determine how much of that, for example, came from the user program, 
what the user wrote to make the make the software operate, and how much of it came from the software itself. But how I much don't recall from... any assertion that uh, they, these uh, programs, that these codes were independently produced. I oh. thought that it was accepted that they were copied. Is that not accurate? It's precisely the opposite, Your Honor. The software code is completely and totally independent. There is no evidence that WPL ever looked at or had access to SAS's code, and there's no, admittedly, there's no allegation whatsoever, and I think opposing counsel conceded it, that our code in any way, shape, or form looks like or resembles co their code. This case is not a literal copying case. This, case, Kelsey, about, this, case, this case is a non-literal copying case exclusively, correct? It's exclusively about non-literal elements, exactly. Not underlying code, but extrapolations from it, things like um, the format in which it presents the outputs. But when you do that, you have to determine first how much of that comes from the user's program? Because this is a software that's basically a developer software. Someone else writes a program, inputs it into the SAS system or WPL system, telling it what analyses to do, how to present the output, and then you get a result. And so you have to figure out how much of that came from the software that, the, excuse me, the program that the user wrote, and how much is it comes from SAS? How much of SAS's system comes from SAS 76, which is a public domain element? How much of the structure is dictated right. by SAS 76? Yeah. You have to do that filtration. Otherwise, if you just throw up in front of the jury these two things and say they're the same, well, they're the same because the same program was written. All right, Counselor, what, what, what's your response to my question as to whether copyrightability is a pure question of law? Are there any factual underpinnings in, in, in that? So there may sometimes be underlying factual questions, but I think it's universally accepted that determining which elements are protected is something that the court must do in advance of the case going to the jury. And I think I maybe start out with um, CompuLife itself, which is why, the lead. Why, why did the district court entertain expert testimony during the evidentiary hearing? Well, I mean, first, I don't think SAS can claim to be prejudiced by that, since they had just simply failed to address protectability in any way, shape, or form before the hearing. This was like a last chance for them to actually give what the district court was asking for, which is, and I'm going to quote, to know exactly. Well, I, 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 I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is, is a lot of the case law out there deals with uh, actions that are taken on the pleadings. And this didn't happen here. And here, the parties actually requested for summary judge, a summary judgment hearing. And instead, they got this uh, specialized uh, evidentiary hearing. And, and I'm, I'm trying to decide if this was a mini-trial uh, or, or if, it was, if it just addressed and involved pure questions of law. Yeah, so I think it's hard to actually sort of cabin this, whether it was a bench determination, summary judgment, or what's best description in my view is it was a pretrial determination akin to Markman or a jurisdictional determination or an evidentiary determination like uh, Daubert where a court will might find facts and make determinations as to what goes to the jury. The one thing I can tell you is it just doesn't make a difference because it's an issue for the court and the court decides it. And I don't think that I'm... Well, well if, it was a summary, if it was a summary judgment hearing, then, then it seems to me the cat, the cat and dog case uh, comes into play here. 
No, I don't think it's a summary judgment. If it's a summary judgment case, the question becomes, is there anything that they've presented to the judge, which the judge can now present to the jury, resulting in a decision in their favor? And after we presented overwhelming evidence that their entire set of asserted works were shot through with unprotected material, they didn't come back and say, actually, you're wrong, that material is protected. And I'm going to go to page 17 of the appendix, the district court's opinion. SAS has not attempted to show what WPL pointed to as unprotectable is indeed entitled to protection. So everything we've shown is undisputed. Next sentence. Do they come back and say, well, you know what? You missed something. There's something here that isn't shot through that is protectable, and that's what we can show the jury. Similarly, SAS has not shown the existence and extent of any remaining protectable work. So they haven't come back and said, yeah, okay, WPL made its showing, but here's what's left that we can give to the jury. So burdens aside, if a party doesn't identify what it can present to a jury to support a judgment in its favor, if it doesn't even tell the court what remains that's protected after the hearing, it loses under any federal rule. You can't just hand the district court an undifferentiated mass and say something in there might be protected, judge. I'm not going to help you identify it. I won't tell you what the individual elements that are protected in. You figure it out. They have to tell the court, at least at the end of the hearing, here's what's left. And they simply didn't do that. And it's particularly aggravated here because the court could not have been more clear. At the beginning of the hearing, the court said, I want to put you on clear notice right now. That's a quote from 3371. I've got to know exactly what you're asserting, page 3317. I've got to have specifics by which I can ask the jury to make a proper comparison. Now, mind you, that's a comparison between the protected elements and the accused work and render a discrete factual finding, again, page 3317. Well, this takes us back to the copyright principles. You can see that this is what has been troubling me throughout. There's been an awful lot that's been written about software and the different kinds of protection through copyright and through patents. And their position seems to conform with the development and the understanding of those differences that the entire work, the entire literary work is what's protected by copyright. And that this filtration that has gotten into the cases and so on really are conformable to copyright law only on a principle going back to fair use. And I agree, I didn't see any reference to fair use. And I assume that's because that there's so much similarity that it would be very hard to prevail on a theory of fair use. And so to figure out where these lines are to be drawn, if in fact, I think it was not disputed, but that the various stages, the functions, now looking at it from the patent viewpoint, that the functions are the same, that the steps from the viewpoint of being copied are not disputed. And so it is necessary, as did the district court, to sort out and look into the details, look under the surface to see what actually was or was not copied. That's the impression that I've gotten from this case. Now, what's your response to that? So I should start out and say the fact that you have a registered work means that the work as a whole, 
So the entirety of the work is entitled to some copyright protection. But that does not mean that every little element, every piece of that work, if it's individually excerpted and used, is entitled to protection. A that fair is use. standard standard. No, it's not a fair use question. It's a question of protection. And the reason is there's a big difference between how the copyright office works and how the patent offices work, and how different and how um, copyright registrations are done and how patents are issued. When the copyright office looks at something. It looks at maybe not the entire work. It might get the last 50 pages and the first 50 pages of 10,000 pages of code. And it only decides, is there something in here worthy of copyright? It doesn't make any determinations that this piece is copyrightable, that piece is copyrightable. Just there's something in the whole work worthy of registration. That's a real difference between that and patents. Patents, you actually have claims that give you the meets and bounds of what is protected. The claims give you the scopes of the rights. So without claims, what happens for copyright, particularly dealing with functional works like software, particularly dealing with non-literal elements, things that aren't actually in the code, there are simply extrapolations from it like structure or plot or something like that. You have to have a court that says, okay, you haven't copied the whole thing, so we're not talking about the entire work. We're talking about things the Copyright Office has never looked at, things the Copyright Office has never seen. So I need to go out and figure out whether these individual elements that are being asserted here are protected. And here, regardless of who has a burden here, the thing that SAS did not do, it did not identify for the comparison between protected elements and the accused work what the protected elements are. It simply produced, reproduced output screens for its, its uh, software and output screens for ours. And the district court properly understood that that would be very confusing for the jury and would not be in, in the slightest probative because those screens, for example, include the user programming, the names of the variables, the, um, the, the types of functions that have been called up. They're based on SAS 76, which is in the public domain. There's simply no way the court could have shown that to the jury. And having presented nothing to the court that could be shown to the jury, having presented no rebuttal that said, okay, I've taken out what's, what's been shown to be public domain, taken out what seems unfair, what's standard mathematical operations, what's user work, having done none of that, SAS properly had judgment entered against it. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. Any more questions for Mr. Lampkin? Uh, this is Judge Wallach. Judge Wallach, no, thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, you have your rebuttal time, Ms. Sindali. Six quick points. One, Dr. Storer testified but was limited in his testimony in the hearing of the court, as we explained in our brief, would not let him test ex explain. Second, um, counsel makes a fundamental error. There was no requirement to show that they copied the code. This is a non-literal case. The code is irrelevant, and every time they mention the code, that just is an obfuscation. Third, as Judge Newman properly said, in copyright, selection and arrangement, as the Supreme Court said in Feist, is a crucial concept. If you could have multiple... Counselor, is it the, is it the fact that this is a non-literal copying case that it heightens your burden of persuasion to show what elements of your of the copyrighted matter are copyright protected? No, Your Honor. We identified, as I said earlier, that what the input formats and output designs were 
that they copied, and you have to do that in every copyright case. You have to say what you think the other person copied, which we did. There's no heightened burden in this kind of context. But as I was saying is that the, the, the district court misapprehended and kept criticizing Storer for saying, well, you need to look at the creative choices. But creative choices are fundamental to copyright. And the Fifth Circuit's decision in, in engineering dynamics, which I commend to the course, court, specifically held as a matter of law that, that input formats and output designs could be protectable. And the court discussed that that's because there's, if, unless there's merger, unless there's only one way to do it, and you often look at the market to see if others, as is the right situation here, are doing it in a different way in this case, that indicates that there's protectable expression. And that's the situation here. Fourth, uh, there's factual copying was found. It's not of the code. Again, it's not of a code case. Appendix 15, the court found factual copying. There's no doubt, as the, the documents I cited show, WPL copied extensively. And then finally, Judge Reina's questions about is this factual or legal, this isn't like a Markman hearing where the only thing is interpretation of a legal doctrine. The limiting doctrines are infused with fact, which is why the Fifth Circuit says in Aspen they're for the jury. Scenes of there, what was factually common in the industry or not? Um, constraint, merger. Are there alternative ways to do things or not? What do other people do in the industry? Public domain, apply it. And the fundamental issues, as you see, following up for also on Judge Rayner, is that my friend said you can't tell what the hearing was. That's a fundamental problem in civil procedure. When I was taught civil procedure in law school, you either had Rule 56 or you had a bench trial. You don't have a separate evidentiary hearing. I, I fear okay. that my well, you, you can have the last word. Anything else okay. you want to tell us? And, and the only thing I, I, I wanted to say that they fundamentally did not do their job of meticulously going through everything that they copied and saying it was unprotectable. The court didn't even say that. At best, the court said was something maybe unprotectable. Didn't define what it was, but something. Well, that leaves Good. the rest of it. Was, but everything was dismissed. And then the last sentence is that um, as we, in Section 2C of our brief, we in fact detail and responded, as we did at the hearing, uh, to everything as to why, in fact, their limiting doctrine arguments are not sufficient. We did, in fact, respond. And we believe this court has the ability to reverse and remand the case to jury trial, finding that the protectability is established and letting the jury decide the issues of comparison. And um, I'd like to, Judge Newman, ask a final oh, question? Of course. Okay. Um, and this goes back to my, the, my initial concern that, that I expressed early in the argument here, and that is the procedural posture of the case and what, what type of hearing was held. And... Um, just, um, I'd like to ask you, Counselor, you, you're familiar with uh, the Federal Civil Procedure 16C2L. Um, yes. And, and that states, L, it states there that um, the court can have a, a hearing, uh, it can adopt 
special procedures for managing potentially difficult to protracted actions that may involve complex issues, multiple parties, difficult legal questions, or unusual proof I'll just calls. interrupt, Judge Reyna. This is Elise, the courtroom deputy. It appears Ms. Sandali is off the line. I can dial her back in. Yes, please do. Okay, thank you. About where we left off, or Judge Reyna, if you wouldn't mind, you, you were asking a, an important question, and uh, I'd be interested in the answer. Right. The, the question that I had goes back to that a question I raised earlier in, in the argument, and that's the, that's the procedural posture of, of the case, the, the point where the district court made a, a decision, and it did it uh, apparently under this evidentiary hearing, and I'm I'm wondering what happens in those type of hearings, and I wanted to point out that the uh, Federal Rules of Procedure 16C2L provides that a court can decide issues, can adopt special procedures for managing potentially difficult or protective actions that may involve complex issues, multiple parties, different legal questions, and unusual proof problems. Now, the, the district court did specify under what rule it was holding this hearing, but it seems to me that this particular rule fits that well. What, what would you say to that? Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, there, that is part of the civil procedure, but you can't use that to trump all the rest of it. As I read um, uh, 16L, it says the court can adopt different procedures, but it doesn't mean it can create, given due process and, and appellate review issues, something that's, that is inconsistent with summary judgment or uh, Rule 52 jury trial. In other words, you can have a, you can have a, a hearing, you can have like extensive discussions on what the jury instructions might be. You can have a you, know, you can have a summary judgment hearing that has different tranches to them. Why, why then? Why then couldn't the district court, after hearing argument and the various presentations during the hearings, determine the unusual proof problems offered in this case and say that SAS failed in its in its uh, to meet its burden? Well, because the fundamental issue is the court can't grant judgment because it, that is for the jury, as the Fifth Circuit said in Aspen. The court, by the evidentiary hearing, was putting itself up as the trier of fact, and that's not a problem. Well, this, goes, this goes to my question of copyrightability, whether it's a pure question of law or one that has factual underpinnings. Correct. And as, as I said, Your Honor, it, uh, Engineering Dynamics adopted Gates, which says it's a mixed question of law and fact. My, my friends do not oppose that or challenge that in the brief. And as would, I, would, it be fair, would it be fair to say that, that the answer to this, to this question is, is unsettled at this point? No, no, actually, I, I don't say, say, think so, Your, Your Honor. I, I, it's especially in light of, um, certainly not in the Fifth Circuit, where, as I said, uh, uh, you know, Aspen specifically said that protectability is a question for the jury. You couldn't be clearer than that. And then Engineering Dynamics, you know, adopting Gates said it was a mixed question of law and fact. And again, my friends don't challenge that. The issue is 
I've been doing copyright law for a long time, not so much patent law, but I know that I've never heard of a hearing like this, and I've never heard of a court decide your whole case with divorce from findings or conclusions. I mean, it must be hard for you folks to understand what exactly did the court hold? What did it find on any of these limiting doctrines meant that, that what we had was unpredictable? You can't tell. And that's because of the procedure was wrong. The court didn't want to do the work of going through, as courts are supposed to do on summary judgment, all of the, uh, you know, are there disputed issues of fact, are they not? If they're, if, they, if they're not disputed issues of fact, then the court can decide things and narrow the case. But otherwise, things go to the, counsel, the jury. Counsel, this is Judge Wallach. Did you inquire of the court whether it wanted to do that work? I'm tired of the pejoratives. I, I'm not trying to make a pejorative, Your Honor. The court said that it did not wish to decide this and have to grapple with Appendix 1, the, the decide whether there were material issues of disputed issue of fact or, or not. And the court chose, expressly said it wasn't doing this on summary judgment. And it couldn't have been a bench trial either because the parties didn't agree to a bench trial and there was a jury trial, and yet there was an evidentiary hearing. And that's neither... Counsel, here's where I think you have a problem. And that is that I think it is a mixed question, but I think in the Fifth Circuit it's probably more well settled than elsewhere. And the problem here is that if it's a mixed question of law and fact, if it's a question of law, factual underpinnings, when I look at the record, I don't see that you identified issues of fact that needed to be decided. There was no counterattack by SAS. Well, two points, Your Honor. One, there was a counterattack. We explained that in Section 2C of our report. Our full counterattack was limited in that they limited Storer and they limited Collins' testimony. And three, they didn't get to the point of us having a counterattack because they didn't meet their burden by merely citing limiting doctrines, some of which didn't even relate to the stuff they copied. You can't just say something's in the public domain from 1976. You have to say, well, what about what you copied fits that bucket? In 76, there were 33 procs. Today, there are over 500 procs, and their own expert admitted the procs changed. So what is it that they contend is actually in the public domain? And they didn't do that work. And they're still arguing that it was our job to do that work. And that's not right. And then finally, my second point is that this court's decision in Oracle v. Google 1, which was cited favorably by the Supreme Court in Google v. Oracle, is somewhat helpful on this because it says when there's a mixed question of law and fact, as Judge Newman was talking about, like in a fair use case, although right now we're not talking about fair use, the issue is let the jury decide the historical facts. And then there's always Rule 50 and the substantial evidence test for the court to weigh in to make sure that the jury got it right. And that could have also been done here. If the court did not wish to decide this or didn't think summary judgment was a good vehicle, he could have said, let's go to trial, let's figure out what the jury instructions should be, and then Rule 50 would 
protect things under the Supreme Court saying that the jury, in a case of mixed question of law and fact, is to decide those fact issues. Okay. Any more questions for Ms. Sindali? Not from Judge Wallach. Thank you. No, thank you, Judge Newman, for letting me have counsel go over time. This is interesting and complicated. So thanks to both counsel. The case is taken under submission. Thank you, Your Honors.